East Sunday morning to hear from your word and to receive communion together as your body. We ask, Lord, that you would soften our hearts by your spirit to hear what you have to say for us in your word, that you would speak clearly through me and prepare our hearts and our minds to understand what you have for us. We believe, Lord, help us in our unbelief. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I see that a few of you read ahead and made sure you were seated at the right hand in the sanctuary this morning. Very clever. (laughs) Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn with me to Matthew 25, 31 through 46. It's Matthew 25, 31 through 46. It's also on the back of your bulletin. So we're coming off of our stewardship series that Gene finished last week, and I'm going back into the lectionary for today, Christ the King Sunday, as we prepare to go through Thanksgiving week and start another season of waiting, Advent. And as we go into Christ the King and shift our focus a little bit, I have a story I want to share with you all. You may be familiar with it. It's the story of a changed heart. It's about a young lady who had everything she could have ever wanted. A nice house full of the latest things and good friends and so on. And yet, she was not satisfied. Her name, as you may have guessed, is Madame Blueberry. Yes, in this VeggieTales story, there we go, people are trying to figure it out. Yeah, VeggieTales. All right, it's a story masterfully narrated by none other than the French peas. And in this story, we are introduced to a very blue blueberry. Like I said, she has a very nice house full of all the latest things. She has close friends, her butlers, named Bob and Larry. And yet, she is not content. She's just not satisfied. After some twists and turns, her house is actually destroyed. As a result of her greed, she has so much stuff stuffed into that tree house that it slips off the tree and into the water. Where does it fly away? It actually catapults after everything falls out and it gets destroyed in a parking lot somewhere else. It's a very exciting story with a lot of twists and turns. You should go home and watch it after this. But along the way, she learns from her impoverished neighbors down the street that the secret to a happy heart is a thankful heart that no amount of goods were going to give her that. Her eyes are open to the lives of the disenfranchised, her neighbors. And the story concludes with her aligning herself with these neighbors and, in a pleasant twist, having her own needs met by them. Well, what does the story of Madame Blueberry have to do with Christ the King or with our passage today? Christ teaches us in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, that just like in the story of Madame Blueberry, the difference between being sheep or goats is the matter of a transformed heart. And as Jesus teaches us these things, he brings our attention to three important points. The first point is that Jesus is king. Jesus is king, and one day he will return as king over all things. From there, the last two points, Jesus offers two possible responses to people who are aware of this reality and claim to believe it. So response number one, that is a living faith. And response number two, a dead faith. 
So let's take a look here. We're finding ourselves near the end of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 25, and we're coming off of a series of parables that Jesus has been teaching that point to what the kingdom of God is, what it looks like, and what it means to be a part of this kingdom. Well, what's a parable? Uh, as a refresher, a friend of mine from the Church of Wales says it like this, that parables are earthly stories with a heavenly twist. All right, Earthly stories with a heavenly twist. They're stories of relatable topics used to describe the kingdom of God. Coming off of two parables that we're all, I think, familiar with, the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents, Jesus then speaks very clearly about the kingdom in a passage that is often called the parable of the sheep and goats, even though it's not actually a parable and not literally about sheep and goats. It is more appropriately called the teaching or warning of the last day or the coming judgment. So let's look at how Christ describes the return of the king and the establishment of his kingdom starting at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. You know, 2020 has been characterized by waiting, yeah? A lot of waiting going on this year. Yeah, I've heard it said, and I actually said it um, myself once as well, it's kind of like Lent never ended, right? We're in a year-long penitential season where we've been deprived from all the things we've become accustomed to in modern American life. Vacations are canceled, staff holiday parties are canceled, but maybe that's not always such a bad thing, right, for introverts. It works out. Major life events have been missed by loved ones or attended virtually. And we can all attest after having lived basically a virtual existence for the past nine months or so, that virtual attendance just isn't the same. Verses 31 through 33 are also characterized by weight. It says, when the Son of Man comes in glory, we are still waiting for Christ to return. And yet, while we wait, we also see promises made in this passage. This, promise, this passage promises that Christ will return as king, and he will reign as king over all things. It also promises that he will, according to verses 32 and 33, separate people the way a shepherd separates sheep and goats. So who are the sheep and the goats. In this passage, the sheep and the goats are people who are characterized by what they did while they were waiting for Christ to return. And as we look at these two paths, the path taken by the sheep and the path taken by the goats, we will also see that even though we are waiting for Christ to return, he may not be as far away from us, even today, as we might think. So let's continue to verses 34 through 36. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. 
I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So there are some important things that we need to note about the sheep um, as we continue in this passage. One of these things is not clearly said in this passage, but it's Christianity 101 and it undergirds everything else in this passage. And that is that these sheep are being welcomed into the kingdom of God and that means that they have been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Okay? So they recognize Christ Jesus as king, and he welcomes them into his kingdom because they have encountered the living Lord by grace through faith. From there, what we see in this passage is that these sheep who are welcomed into the kingdom are well spoken of by the Father. That's what the literal rendering of the word blessed means here. They are spoken well of by the Father. Why is that? Why would somebody be well spoken of by the Father? Because we know from Scripture there's no unrighteous, right? Not even one. That we're all sinners in need of grace. That even on our best days, our best works are like filthy rags before the Lord. So how could a righteous Father speak well of sinful children? It goes back to that thing that we talked about that is underneath the reality of this passage that they have been saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so when the father sees the sheep, what he sees is his perfect son, Jesus Christ, in their place. Because this is not a story about works-based righteousness. This is a story about a life transformed by faith. And this passage looks particularly at what that faith looks like what that faith does while it waits for the king. It's a living and active faith, characterized according to Jesus himself in verses 35 and 36 by showing love to Christ himself in practical ways. And that is response number one, that Jesus presents a living faith. What does that look like? How could they have shown Christ's love in practical and tangible ways? And how do we, living in America almost 2,000 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, how do we show Jesus' love in practical ways? Well, the sheep have similar questions for Jesus in verses 37 through 39. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? In the story, both the sheep uh, and the goats are surprised by what Jesus tells them on that last day. Look at that response from the sheep in 37 through 39. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, which can also mean immigrant? or sick, or in prison. They're staring the Lord in the face saying, I don't remember visiting you at the Cleveland Clinic. You know, I don't remember visiting you at the local jail. I can't place you. But the fact of the matter is that they did see him, just not in the way that they might have expected. Jesus helps us to understand in this passage that what it means to love 
Jesus, to serve the Lord practically in this life, comes from a sort of reimagining of the world around us as we await the return of the king. And so we see Jesus' answer to their question in verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See, Christ is identifying himself in the story and the experiences of the hurting and the oppressed. And we see this concept throughout Scripture. Uh, In the Old Testament, one of the large themes, what we call a meta-narrative of the Old Testament, is the idea that God delivers an oppressed people out of exile, delivering them despite their stubbornness and their sinfulness, and then telling them, to show that kind of love to the oppressed and the disenfranchised and the marginalized in their own circles. And one of the central themes of the judgment pronounced on the people of God in the Old Testament through the voices of the prophets is because they did not do those things, but rather became oppressors themselves. This theme continues in the New Testament. Y'all remember when Mary's visited by the angel Gabriel, and Gabriel tells her that she's going to give birth to a boy and his name will be Jesus. She responds with a song, which is featured in our prayer book in the evening prayer service. We call it the Magnificat. And a little bit of it goes like this. He has brought down the mighty from their throne and has exalted the humble and meek. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Jesus' own mother sings these words. And she's not making up something new about God. She's looking back to her Bible, the Old Testament, and just reciting what she already knows to be true about God. She's given the most incredible news that out of her womb is going to come the Savior of the world. And in response to this, she sings about the character of God that God is for the disenfranchised, that he aligns himself with the plight of the oppressed. And the Apostle Paul knows this too, later in our New Testament. So he has Timothy, one of his disciples, warn the rich people in his congregation not to find security in their wealth, but to participate in the kingdom of God around them now by being generous and giving their money to the poor in their Christian community, the church. You can find that in 2 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Because he knows, just like the prophets of old and Mary, the mother of Jesus, he knows that God is aligned with the poor and the oppressed. And in this story that Jesus is telling his disciples about the coming of the kingdom, Christ is talking about a particular group of marginalized and disenfranchised people. We look back to Jesus' response to the sheep. As you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That word brothers is a plural and can mean brothers and sisters. So think of it like that. What you did to these, my brothers and sisters. Well, in the Gospels, Jesus identifies a particular group of people as his brothers his sisters, and even his mother. And it was those, in his words, who do my father's will. What does that mean? 
It means that when Jesus is identifying the least of these, my brothers and sisters, he has in mind in particular the needy within the church herself, the needy within the body of Christ. These sheep are characterized by a living faith, a faith with feet, and their love for Christ is revealed by their love for the needy in the body of Christ in particular and the world at large. This faith reimagines the world around it. It seeks to make things on earth as it is in heaven. Um, An ancient uh, dead Christian named John Chrysostom put it like this, If you do not see Christ in the beggar at the door, you will not see him in the chalice at communion. Well, after engaging with the sheep, the people on his right, King Jesus turns his attention to those who are characterized by dead faith, the goats. Starting at verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. What is good news, though surprising news, for the sheep, is surprising, yet bad news, For the goats. See, a life characterized by love, motivated by faith and gratitude toward the finished work of Christ on the cross, set the sheep on the course for eternal life in the favorable presence of God. A life absence of such faith set the goats on a path to the second death. And this is the second response Jesus brings up in this passage, a dead faith. Note what's not said in this passage. These people are not cast away because of a lack of knowledge about who God is, but a lack of love for Him. Their lives were not characterized by love, not necessarily because they did not know the truth about God, but because their hearts were not transformed by love through the grace of God in Christ. And just like the sheep, they are surprised and what King Jesus has to say to them in verse 44. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? You see how they address Jesus. Lord, same address that the sheep give him. They acknowledge objectively, intellectually, the reality of who Jesus is, that he is the Lord. And despite this, Jesus says that they did not show him love. How did they not show love to Christ? We see our answer in verse 45. Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Whenever they ignored the hurting, whenever they ignored the oppressed and chose not to love those on the fringes of society, particularly those within the church, they chose not to love Christ. The goats are kind of like the anti-sheep here, okay? 
Um, we see from verses 37 and 44 that both the sheep and the goats know who Jesus is. However, the sheep have affection for Christ. Their hearts have been transformed by the love of Christ, which prompts them to take part in the mission that God has been doing from the beginning, to show the redemptive love that he has for his world around him. And this is ultimately expressed in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and then carried forward in the lives of Christians who choose to carry their crosses in their communities for the sake of the suffering and the hurting around them, even 2,000 years later. The goats may have an intellectual understanding of who Jesus is, but their hearts are not transformed by his love. There's like a gap here, right? The world has not been reimagined in a way where they could see the beggar, Christ in the beggar at the door. And this problem only comes from either a lack of knowledge of the gospel or a lack of conviction from it. Because when we truly believe, when the Holy Spirit softens our heart to the truth of the gospel, our hearts are transformed. And out of gratitude for what Christ has accomplished, we cannot help but live for Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit though imperfect and entirely dependent on the grace of God. But the goats experience no such gratitude, no such transformation. Their lives are characterized by a dead faith, an intellectual assent of the facts that does not convict them to a transformed heart. What's the result of this reality? We see in verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's a fixed destination for the sheep and for the goats. It's not a popular doctrine to teach, but the reality is this, that our eternal destination is based on whether or not our hearts have been made regenerate by the grace of God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the way that we love a hurting world around us, is the evidence of such a faith. Some might say, wait a minute, Jesus welcomed the sheep into his kingdom and cast the goats away on the basis of what they have done. That's works-based righteousness. I thought we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. See, in this story, Christ is not adding to faith by delineating between the sheep and the goats. He's defining it. His half-brother James, once resentful of Jesus, and then one of his followers, puts it like this in James two fourteen to 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith is not defined as simply a knowledge of something that is objectively true, such as knowing or being convinced about the reality of who God is. 
James continues on to say in James 2, 19, even the demons believe in God and shudder. The demons are not atheists, friends. They know what happened on the cross. They know who Jesus is. But faith is not an intellectual assent or comprehension of the facts. The word faith, which is in the Greek pistis, can be translated as allegiance. That is to say that a living faith, like the one James is describing in his book, and what Jesus is describing in Matthew 25, is living faith, a transformed heart by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit on the basis of the objective truth of the gospel. So living faith is a transformed heart by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit on the basis of the objective truth of the gospel. Faith that saves has ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart to love, hands and feet to act. It does not mean we're perfect, hence the reason we're saved by grace alone, right? But it does mean that being a recipient of such grace, being given the gift of faith, means we are transformed and embark on a journey of continuously being transformed by the grace of God into the likeness of Christ, which manifests in love for Christ, neighbor, stranger, and enemy alike. So what do we do about this? 2,000 years from the time that this was taught in suburban America. We love. That's the evidence of a transformed heart, loving Christ, loving his bride, the church, loving our neighbor. It's getting into the habit of being aware of the needs around us and loving Christ by loving the needy, by meeting their actual true needs. Again, we're not going to be perfect. That's why I keep emphasizing we are saved by grace through faith. And yet that faith produces a transformed heart. And with that being said, I think that Christ Church needs to be commended for her generosity. You know that because y'all were convicted by the Spirit to love the disenfranchised in our community, that 12 families in the Avon Lake City School District who were unemployed or underemployed will be able to have Thanksgiving dinner this year without paying a single dime. It's a big deal. And not only that, but this church has shown a tendency for meeting the needs in her own midst through the meals ministry, by praying for one another through the prayer chain and prompting into action through service projects and acts of tangible love for the members of Christ Church. And then loving the community at large through things like Operation Christmas Child and the CRS partnership and so many more ways that we are showing love of Christ, and love to Christ in tangible ways. I was hungry and you fed me. Whatever you did to the least of these, you did for me. This is the transformed life. And so I pray we continue to have ears to hear, eyes to see, hands and feet to act, and a heart to love and meet the needs of our disenfranchised, on the fringe, marginalized and oppressed neighbors. And if you're listening... This morning, and 
you've not had your heart warmed and convicted toward Christ and your neighbor, I want to tell you that there is hope, right? That can start today. In Scripture, we see a promised answer yes to two prayers. That is, asking for wisdom and praying for the Holy Spirit. That is, to, have, to pray for God to dwell in you, to change you. That's called salvation. Placing faith in what Jesus has done and saying, I want to be now an agent of that kingdom on the behalf of and for the sake of King Jesus. Your heart can be changed in an instant. It can be on your journey to living out a life changed by the grace of God. And if you've been doing this for a while and you know you do have faith in Christ and um, on most days you do love your neighbor, but you're going through 2020 like the rest of us and it's hard enough feeling love for yourself right now and you're feeling a little callous and frustrated, I want to tell you that sometimes it's just helpful to get into the habit of doing loving things anyway. Because sometimes habit precedes affection. And so if you're feeling kind of cold and calloused towards your neighbor, love them. Do things to show love to the hurting around you. And you'll find that that work is something that the Holy Spirit works in to transform your heart on the journey. It's like the conclusion of the Madden Blueberry story we talked about earlier. To recap, after chasing satisfaction or worldly things, her eyes are open to her impoverished neighbor, and her home is destroyed as a result of her greed. And yet, despite that loss, she finds more than she could have ever wanted as her impoverished neighbors care for her and show her what it means to love and be thankful. Because her heart's changed, and she comes to see that the secret to a happy heart is a thankful heart. And as a result of that transformation, that movie or that show ends with her sitting at the table with her impoverished neighbors and aligning herself with them, with their struggle, with their story. Her heart's changed, and so can ours. And so I hope as we continue to celebrate Christ the King Sunday uh, this morning, going into the afternoon, and prepare to celebrate Thanksgiving and enter into the season of Advent, that our hearts continuously become thankful for the grace of God in Christ given to us. And that as a result of that gratitude, we will be transformed and enter into the life of living faith as we await the King. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your gospel, that you don't leave any of this a secret, that you clearly tell us what a life of following you looks like, that your gospel is so accessible to each of us, and yet so deep that we can never uncover all of its beauty. We ask, Lord, that as we continue this service today, that we be nourished uh, by communion and by prayer together and that you prepare our hearts for the works that you've given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Faith in the words of the apostles.